If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab that, turn to Titus chapter 1 as we remain standing uh, together this morning. Titus chapter 1. I'm going to read for us here verses 1 through 4. I mean, praise God for this full room this morning. Jesus promised in his word he would build his church and the gates of hell would not overcome. Can we just celebrate that Jesus is still building his church today? Amen. We would just praise him for that. Praise him for this. Titus chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we ask, Father, that you would use it now to edify your church and to glorify your name. Lord, that we would be sanctified by the truth of your word because your word is truth. God, we thank you for how your word reveals to us your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask that we would see him today. Lord, help us to see through your word this morning the importance of being sound in our doctrines, sound in our teaching, but also sound in our living and in our devotion. Father, be glorified in all of this this morning. We ask that you would speak now to us through your word, that we would hear your voice clearly today, which you have to speak to your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And now we've got some mic issues going on, so bear with us here for just a second while all that gets sorted out. But Titus chapter 1 uh, is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, um, hopefully you're there already. Um, if you're new with us, you're guest with us, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor and honored to have you here worshiping with us this morning. We're kicking off a new message series in the book of Titus uh, from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 today. It's a series called Common Faith. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be here for about the next six weeks, um, spending uh, our time walking verse by verse through the book of Titus. So again, looking at verses one through four uh, together this morning. Um, a, a few weeks before I got married, uh, my dad sent me an email that had a really long letter. It was about 12 pages long. And uh, you know, biblically, uh, a young man getting married, it represents uh, coming out from under the covering of his father and his mother. It's symbolically a sending off as he goes to uh, start and begin his own family through uh, the, the covenant of marriage. And so my dad sent me this long letter to sort of commemorate this, this sending off and me coming out from under the cover of his home. And so uh, it was very fatherly. Uh, it was earnest. It was urgent. It was sincere. And through the letter, you know, he offered me several different things. Part of it was uh, encouragement that he was offering me, um, just areas of my life where he wanted to tell me that he was proud and, uh, and just grateful for how the Lord was working and moving in and through my life. And then there was some exhortation. There was some challenge in that letter, some areas where he challenged me to be bold and to be strong and to be courageous. And uh, like a good father, there was also some admonition. Um, he saw some inconsistencies in my life, uh, and he, uh, he spoke to those very, very clearly. I was a little bit too proud to receive it at the time, uh, but, but hindsight 2020, I can look back, and it's amazing how smart my dad's gotten in 11 years um, that he uh, saw some of those things. The one takeaway that I remember most from that letter uh, was that uh, my dad uh, wrote in there just a little snippet that I, I've written on the inside cover of my Bible. I read it before I preach every single week. He, he said to, to remember, he said, when you stand alone, you never stand alone 
for God stands with you. And just being able to hold on to that, just being able to, to keep that and encourage that. Yeah, handheld mic is fine. Let's just, yeah, whatever needs to happen, that's cool. Yep, this one here, good to go. I'm, I'm a hand talker, so we'll see how this goes. Um, so, um, so, so he encouraged me through, through this letter in, in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and, and so th this is something that I've really held on to for a long time. And when we get to Paul's letter to Titus, uh, it's very fatherly in its tone. It's very similar. Uh, the, the tone of the letter is urgent, and it's sincere, and it's, uh, it's earnest. There's Paul speaking as a father to Titus, whom he calls his true son in a common faith. He's his true son in a common faith. Paul had a significant personal investment in Titus. Uh, he had discipled him. Titus was a Gentile convert um, who had, uh, had, had come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. And so Paul had spent a lot of time with him, pouring into him, investing in him. When we get to uh, Acts chapter 16, this is the first major conflict in the life of the early church. It's known as the Jerusalem Council. And what was being debated at the Jerusalem Council was whether or not Jew, uh, Gentile converts were going to be required to follow a lot of the Jewish Mosaic law. So Paul had Titus there really as a case study and as an example of the fact that the power of the gospel had not been limited among the Gentiles. They also served as ministry partners together. Uh, Titus delivered one of Paul's letters. He was a courier to the church in Corinth, and he delivered what's known as Paul's tearful letter or his painful letter. It was a hard letter that, that Paul had to write to the church in Corinth because they had drifted into sin, and so they had been ministry partners together, had served alongside one another. And Titus is one of three what we call pastoral epistles, along with First and Second Timothy. Timothy and Titus were young pastors serving in different ministry contexts. And so here is Paul uh, before his final Roman imprisonment towards the end of his life, writing letters to his young protégés and giving them instruction for leadership within the church. And, and much like the letter that my dad wrote to me, you get the sense from Paul as he's writing that he knows his time is short. He understands that his time is short. He recognizes uh, that his time might be limited. And so like the letter my dad wrote for me, it was earnest. It was sincere. It was clear. Paul doesn't mince words. He wants to make sure he leaves these two young protégés with the direction and the clarity that they need uh, to lead forward in the church. If you uh, look through the book of Titus and you read through First and Second Timothy, what we get here uh, is a lot. At the book of Titus in particular, we're going to see the next few weeks. It's, it's only three short chapters long, church, that this book is loaded. In the next few weeks, we, we get to see doctrine, we get to see theology, we see church governance and polity, we see ecclesiology, we see practical wisdom for dealing with false teachers, practical wisdom for handling conflict within the church, we see qualifications for ministry leaders. Uh, Danny Aiken's the president of, of Southeastern Seminary, and he has described the book of Titus as both an apostolic field manual for church planting uh, and also as a bargain basement letter because you get a whole lot more than you pay for. You can read the whole book of Titus in, in probably 10, 15 minutes, but it is absolutely packed line by line. So uh, we know from the book of Acts that uh, on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and he preached and 3,000 people were saved. And we're told uh, that day that there were Jews who were present from the island of Crete. And so th this is probably uh, how the gospel first got to Crete, where Paul is writing to Titus. But this is now a few decades later, and Paul and Titus have spent a little bit of time doing ministry in this area. And he has now left Titus with the charge of establishing order and establishing leadership within that local church context. So he's giving him the clear direction for the priorities of new churches. 
So the relevance for Titus today for our church family is really, really easy to see. So just elephant in the room, uh, we are still uh, very much a young church, uh, and I'm very much a young pastor. So uh, I'll be 34, Lord willing, here in just a few weeks, unless he has different plans for me. And, uh, and, and so um, I'm roughly about the same age that most agree Titus and Timothy were when Paul wrote these letters. They were probably in their 20s or 30s. And we are, as a church family, still very much a young church. You know, when you particularly consider the fact that we're in a community where we have some congregations that are two or 300 years old. You know, so we, we as a church, we publicly launched January 2017. And our youngest son, Lincoln, is kind of our measuring rod for that period of time. Lincoln was born the week of our first Easter, so he's about four and a half now. He started his final year of preschool a few days ago, which is crazy for us to believe, because our family's a place like, we don't have babies anymore, we just have kids now, right? Like, it's a, it's a big transition. It's very, very weird for, for us to, to be walking through that. And so if our church was a child, like, we haven't even started kindergarten yet. We, we are still very much in our early formative years, and what the book of Titus offers us is clear direction and instruction for the priorities of a young pastor and of a young church. So for, the, for our church family here locally, it's easy application, but for the church globally, there's still plenty of application. Because what we're going to see over and over and over again through the book of Titus is the age-old plumb line that we have to practice what we preach. We have to practice what we preach. It is not enough for a church to be sound in doctrine. Now, does a church need to be sound in doctrine? There we go. Okay, I was worried there for a second. I was like, maybe we need a different message today. Does a church need to be sound in doctrine? Absolutely yes. But it's not enough for a church to simply be sound in doctrine. Our behavior has to match our belief. We have to be practicing what it is we're preaching. And so it's not enough to be focused on orthodoxy, which focuses on the truth of what we preach. We also have to focus what we saw in Matthew 23 earlier this year on orthopraxy. We have to actually practice and live out the things that we are preaching. Because when a church does not uh, practice as it preaches, we become functional atheists. We, we essentially live our lives no differently than those who reject the word outright. And we have to be people, if we say that we believe in grace, we say that we believe in love, we say that we believe in mercy, we say that we believe in justice, this needs to be reflected in the culture and devotion and behavior of a church. I heard Ray Ortland say on a podcast not long ago, speaking very to a similar subject here, he said, if we're not careful, a church can unsay in its culture what it says in its doctrine. A church can unsay in its culture what it says in its doctrine. It's not enough to be sound in doctrine. We also have to be faithful devotion. And that's what we're going to be seeing today is that gospel doctrine produces gospel devotion. Gospel doctrine produces gospel devotion. It's great to be preaching the gospel. You know, there are many things that we as a church, just right under five years old, there are many things, hindsight 2020, looking back, million things that I wish we'd done differently. Decisions I wish we'd made differently and, 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 and situations that I wish we'd pursued a little bit differently. But the one thing I praise God for that I feel like has confidently happened week in and week out, faithfully for five years, regardless of who has been standing here, is that we are a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need that foundation. That foundation is important, but gospel doctrine produces gospel devotion. In many churches, unfortunately, in, in many circles, it, sound doctrine becomes a smokescreen that covers a multitude of sins. Churches sound in doctrine, 
in its teaching, but the culture is harsh. The culture is unwelcoming. The culture is, is condescending. The culture is proud. The culture is arrogant. What is practiced is very different than what's preached. It unsays in its culture what it says in its doctrine. It's not enough to preach sound doctrine from the pulpit if congregationally we're full of division and gossip and slander. And this is what Paul is speaking to time and time again within the book of Titus. And so as he's giving Titus all this practical instruction, we'll see over the next several weeks, he is uh, chapter in, chapter out, encouraging Titus to be on the lookout for the two greatest threats to any church, which are false teaching and divisive people how we handle these things. And this is so important for us, particularly as a a newer church, as a younger church. And so we're going to see today, uh, Titus chapter 1, that gospel doctrine produces gospel devotion. Uh, So uh, going back again, Titus chapter 1, read here uh, first line from verse 1. Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. These are both very important titles that Paul is using here. This word servant, it's the same word we saw when we studied the book of Philippians last fall. Uh, It translates bondservant, doulos, or slave is the most literal translation of that word. Paul introduces himself as a slave of God. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. He is someone who's surrendered his life and his privileges, all authority he had completely into the service of Jesus Christ. And then he also identifies as an apostle. This word apostle means sent one. He's a messenger. And so by combining these two terms, Paul is saying that he is someone who has surrendered himself fully, heart and soul, mind, body, and strength, into service of Jesus Christ, into the advancement of his kingdom, into proclaiming the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is how Paul introduces himself within the letter. And he goes on to say the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, For the sake of the faith... Of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So, gospel doctrine produces gospel devotion. We're going to look this morning first at our doctrine in terms of election, evidence, and eternity. Doctrine in terms of election, evidence, and eternity. Paul says he is writing here for the sake of of the faith of God's elect. Now, uh, this doctrine, the doctrine of election, this is one of the most difficult and one of the most awesome doctrines in all of the Christian faith. Uh, It is equal parts mystery and controversy, and it's, especially over the last four or five hundred years, it's been one of the primary controversies within the life of the church. It's typically couched or framed within uh, the context of the debate between Arminianism and Calvinism. Did God choose us or did we choose him? And and what I want us to see this morning is that this doctrine in no way, shape, or form is meant to scare us. It's meant to strengthen us. It's it's meant to give us more confidence in who Jesus is. And so what exactly does this mean? That that, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Uh, J.I. Packer in his work, Concise Theology, which if you're really interested in just a primer on Christian doctrine and theology and building some foundations, this is a good starting point. He writes here, the biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race foreseen as fallen. So not because he saw us and knew that we were going to be good one day, no, foreseen as fallen those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace. 
for it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation, so it is a wonder and a matter for endless praise that he should choose to save any of us, and doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his own son to suffer as sin-bearer for the elect. This word elect simply means to select, to choose out, or to call out. And the consistent message of Scripture from start to finish is that God chooses people. He chose Israel from among the nations. He chose Abraham from among the peoples. It is God from eternity past who calls and chooses and selects those who will be saved. So turn with me in your Bible here uh, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And we're going to take a quick walk through a few passages of Scripture, starting in Ephesians 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. And I want us to read this passage because we're going to see that, again, this doctrine is not meant to scare us. It's meant to strengthen us. We're going to see that whatever all this means, God's electing and his choosing and his predestining, it's because it's done in love. It starts with this foundation. It's not intended to frighten us. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul writes here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so Paul makes it clear here, it is God in eternity past who chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. He's done this to the praise of his glorious grace, and he's done it in love. Now turn uh, back a few pages to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to see how all of these pieces of the puzzle fit together from eternity past into our present and then eternity future to come one day. Romans 8 verses 28 through 30, Paul says this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so Paul pieces it all together. And listen, this is important for us to see. This is all past tense language. God foreknew and he chose and he predestined. He has justified us in the present, our our standing before God. We're now innocent and blameless of our sin because of Jesus. But he doesn't go on to say, you will be glorified. He says, you have been glorified. This is past tense language. This is what this means for you and I today. Because God called us in eternity past, we're not only secure in the here and now, we're secure for eternity to come. What this doctrine means for us, church, is that God called your name before your parents even gave it to you. In eternity past, he looked and he saw us, and he didn't see us when we were good. He didn't see us as righteous. He didn't see us as holy. He didn't see us as blameless. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in our brokenness. He saw us in our depravity, and in his mercy and grace and kindness, he still said, mine. That one belongs to me. 
It is God who has called. It is God who has chosen. It is God who has drawn to himself. It is God who has justified. It is God who will glorify us in eternity to come. If you are in Jesus Christ, your standing before God is as secure as the seat of Jesus at his right hand. And it can't be taken away from you. And so this is not intended to scare us. It's intended to encourage us. But I know some of us are sitting there going, well, well it's, then it's game over, right? Sounds like we're all just a bunch of robots. Like, I don't have a choice in the matter. Like, like God's just kind of driving all this behind the scenes. I have no real responsibility here. Okay, time out. Because what we've got to do now is look at another truth that we find in Scripture that the Word of God holds in equal tension. So turn with me uh, to John chapter 3. And most of us are very familiar. Uh, John 3, verse 16 Maybe the most famous verse in all the Bible, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And yet we also see that God predestined and called and chosen, and he's done all of this. So, so what do we do with all this? Well, this is what Jesus says in John 3, verses 18 and uh, 19. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So listen, two truths that hold are in perfect tension from the biblical standpoint are in no way in contradiction. God is completely sovereign. That This is the consistent message of Scripture. God gets credit for the saving. You and I get credit for the sinning. It is God who has called, it is God who has chosen, it is God who has predestined, it is God who has elected. The words don't mean the opposite of what they say. The words mean what they mean. And yet, on the other hand, we, are, we see that we are still totally responsible. So, so it is God who chooses and it's God who calls, and yet we are still responsible to call on him and be saved. Again, many want to argue back and say, no, 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 Scripture says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes and amen. They will call on the name of the Lord and be saved because the Lord in eternity past called on them to be saved. And so this is how it all comes together. And listen, you say, well, how does, how does that work? That God is sovereign and we are, responsible, and we are, and we are responsible. And the answer is pretty simple. I have no idea. No clue whatsoever. Neither did Paul. Listen, go read the rest of his letters. He calls it all a mystery. One of the most famous sermons on this whole subject was preached by Charles Spurgeon nearly a couple of centuries ago about how God is sovereign and we are responsible. And the way he sets it up in the sermon, this is why I wish I had both my hands right now. Um, he, he talks about, just use my fingers here, two parallel train tracks. There's one train track of God's sovereignty and then parallel to that is man's responsibility. And he says, somewhere in the vastness of eternity, those two intersect. This is what he said. He said, one day, he said, we're going to come before the throne of Jesus, and we will see in that moment where those two places intersect. Just think about this. There's going to come the day where we're going to understand it. We're going to, the mystery's going to be solved. It's like coming to the end of a Hardy Boys novel, right? Like we, we know, like one day we're going to get to the end of this thing, and we're going to figure it all out, and it's going to happen at the throne of Jesus. The day is going to come, we're going to see him face to face, and we're going to see his sovereignty intersect with our responsibility. Our minds are going to be blown, and we're going to say, that's how you did it. And so we can live within this tension. But, but then, again, this creates some apprehension for many. But remember, this doctrine is not meant to scare us. It's meant to strengthen us. Because many of us wonder, we're like, well, well how do I know if I've been chosen? Like, how, how do I know if, if, God, if God chose me? How do I know if I've been saved? Well, have you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? Congratulations, you've been chosen. 
Because this is what we see over and over again. Whoever calls on him will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These things will happen because God has called you for them to happen. And so we can have confidence in this. We say, well, how do I know if I've been chosen? That's what Paul goes on to talk about next. Outside of our election, there is evidence of our election. So here's what he says uh, in back to Titus 1, uh, going in to verse 2. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Our election produces evidence that the profession of faith, the profession of faith is proven by our works and by our actions. It accords with godliness. It's not enough to have right doctrine in our heads. We have to believe it in our hearts. It has to be manifest in our hands. It accords with godliness. That doctrine produces devotion in our lives. So how can I know if I'm truly in Christ? Listen, do you bear the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, and 23, Paul walks through this. He says the works of the flesh, these are evident. And he said this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And so I just ask you this morning, examine your heart, examine your life. Do you possess, do you produce the fruit of the Spirit? Is that the natural overflow of your life? Because a heart that has been regenerated by the gospel, it doesn't just have to follow the word of God out of begrudging submission. It becomes the natural overflow. When your heart has been regenerated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, this becomes the natural overflow in your life. We don't just desire God's word, we not, and we not only delight to do what it says, we also delight to not do what it forbids. And this is the evidence. It's doctrine that accords with godliness. It's evidenced in godliness. Um, when I was uh, a college freshman, um, I was working in retail and working on a shipment team, and so I was scheduled to work one morning at, uh, I think it was like 5 a.m. I really didn't want to go, though, because I stayed out with my friends till like 3 a.m., And um, but I knew I, I couldn't just call in and say, hey, I'm tired, and I needed some sort of good excuse, and so I decided uh, to be dishonest and call and, and tell my boss and say, hey, uh, my, my battery died. So what I did is I woke up a few minutes before I was supposed to be there and told him my battery died in my car, and then I went back to sleep for a couple of hours, but I also knew I needed to be able to show up and, and at least look like my story was legit, right? So what I did is uh, I popped the hood of my car, and I got some grease all over my hands, and I put it all over my t-shirt, and I had a change of clothes, and I came rushing into work looking like I was so sorry for being late, and ran and changed real quick and jumped in. He said, no problem. Now, students, before you get any ideas, two days later, the car, I kid you not, the battery in my car actually died. Your sin will find you out, okay? <laughs> terrible idea. Terrible, terrible idea, but I felt like there had to be some sort of evidence that went with the things that I was saying, and I fear that, man, for many of us as followers of Jesus, this is what we think we've gotten ourselves into, is now i got to forcibly produce something, and that's not what it means to be regenerated with Christ. What is the natural overflow of your heart? We don't, we don't just start doing good works out of our own will and volition. This is what's produced in us. And we produce these good works, and we do these good works not out of fear that if we don't do them, that God's going to let us go. And that our salvation is going to be lost because this is what Paul goes on to tell Titus. He says this accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Now understand something, church, about this word hope when it's used in the Bible. It's not used in the way that we oftentimes use the word hope in a secular sense. Like we, we might wake up one morning and say, hey, I hope that it rains today. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. 
There's not a tinge of doubt when Scripture uses the hope. The word hope in Scripture, it speaks to confident expectation. It's not, I hope it rains today, it's, it's going to rain today. I, I look around, I see the circumstances, I see what's happening, and I have a confident expectation that this is what's going to happen. And so Paul is saying, hey, we're not hoping for eternal life. And they'll say, in the way that you wake up and just hope that it rains. He's saying, no, you can have the confident expectation of eternal life. And why is this? He says, because God, who does not lie, God who cannot lie, he promised this ages ago. And the word he uses for ages there doesn't mean a few decades. He means in eternity past. It's in eternity past. God called your name. He foreknew you. You were predestined. You were called. You were chosen. He did all of this in eternity past, which means you can be confident that he's going to see you through to the end. The one who has called you is going to keep you. He's not going to let you go. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is what that means for you and I. It means we don't have to soften the edges of the gospel. We can speak plainly about hard truths like the doctrine of election. Like we don't have to soften it just because it's a little bit difficult to comprehend. No, we, we preach the gospel as it's been given to us, confident that those who belong to Jesus will hear it and they will respond. We can believe that this is true and we can know that this is true. We can have this confident hope. We can have this confident expectation because God never lies and he promised it eternity ago. This is what this means for us today practically. One, one of the big uh, issues that was facing the churches in Crete that Titus was going to have to confront was false teaching. And there's probably no greater strand of false teaching within the church today than the continued perpetuation that your salvation is something that can be lost. Listen to me. Paul said God never lies, and he promised this in eternity past. To teach that your salvation can be lost, listen to me. This is not just error. This is heresy. Because you're calling God a liar. We're saying that what he promised eternity ago isn't actually true. No, no, we, we have to totally repudiate this and push this away and silence those who would teach this because it leaves so many people. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of a more damning and condemning teaching than this concept that your salvation can be lost. Listen, if you are in Christ, he's not going to let you go. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's good news, amen? We can rest in this. We can have this confident hope and expectation. So that's our doctrine. That's our doctrine. But it's not enough for us as a church to be sound in doctrine. It's not enough for us to have good doctrine. That good doctrine, sound doctrine, it should produce devotion. It should overflow into our lives. So let's look second this morning at our devotion in terms of mission, ministry, and message. So uh, Paul goes on to say here, verses 3 and 4, he says, of this eternal life and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So through Jesus Christ, God manifested what he had planned in eternity past. The incarnation of Jesus, this was eternity coming into reality at what Paul says was the proper time. What God had determined was the moment in history that God in the flesh would step into the time and space of humanity. 
It was at the proper time all of this was manifested, and Paul was entrusted with the stewardship of this message. Uh, and so we, we see uh, all of this um, working just kind of through what Paul has set up to this point. God's entrusted him with the stewardship of this message. He's surrendered himself to the life of this message, and, and this was his mission. Just to break this down, because, again, you, you read the writings of Paul, and, and, and Paul's writing, man, a lot of times it's just one giant run-on sentence. I mean, it's just a grammar teacher's nightmare. I mean, he just goes on and on and on. It's like, brother, would you use a period somewhere? It's verses one through four. It's just one long sentence. And so th this is what he says was his mission. First, it was for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Second, and their knowledge of the truth. Third, which is evidenced in godliness. And fourth, promises eternal security in Christ. That was his message. That, excuse me, that was his mission. That was the purpose for which God had called him, to strengthen the faith of the elect. But then this was also his ministry. He says he was entrusted with the preaching of the word. This word preaching, it speaks to the action of what Paul is doing here. It's proclaiming the message of the gospel. Now, when you read the New Testament, there's a couple of different words that are used uh, to, to really describe those um, who preach the message of the gospel, which, by the way, it's not just my responsibility, it's all of our responsibility. Those who preach the message of the gospel are described uh, in the sense of being heralds or being stewards. Now, a herald is someone who does during a time of war what an ambassador does during a time of peace. What a herald does, you've probably seen this in a movie, he's the guy that rides the horse in behind enemy lines, and he proclaims to that enemy the terms that have been set forth by the king. You know, hey, the king says surrender, or we're going to kill all you guys. And, and that's, that's his job. It's just to, to deliver the message of the king. He carries the authority of the king in terms of the message that he's delivering to an enemy. So that's the work of a herald. And as a steward, he's entrusted with the integrity of that message, which means he does not have editorial authority over what he wants to communicate. Now, he knows he's walking into some hostility, but he doesn't have the freedom to just go into enemy lines as the steward and say, hey, the king said everything's cool between us. Like, you guys go home, we'll go home, let's grab lunch together later, we'll all be friends, no problem here. Now, he's, he's going to be killed for this, because that's not what the king communicated to him. He was not given the freedom to, to do this, and so this is what Paul is doing. He's proclaiming, he's heralding, he is stewarding, he has been entrusted with this message, and so he's going to lay out the message of the gospel just the way it's been given to him by Christ. So this was his mission, this was his ministry, and this was his message to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The saving grace of the gospel that's poured out to us, that's evidenced through our pouring out of grace and peace to others. Our doctrine has to produce devotion. Our doctrine has to produce devotion. The preaching of grace has to be reflected in the practice of grace. The preaching of peace has to be reflected in the practice of peace. The preaching of love needs to be reflected in the practice of love. The preaching of mercy needs to be reflected in the practice of mercy. The preaching of justice has to be reflected in the practice of justice. When we don't practice as we preach, again, we are functional atheists at this point. Because we're living our lives no differently than those who reject the word of God outright. It's not possible for a true biblical church to have orthodoxy but no orthopraxy. Or, or to have sound doctrine and have no devotion. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And the presence of one is evidence of the presence of the other. 
We have to practice what we preach. Our doctrine has to produce devotion or we betray ourselves. We commit spiritual malpractice and we prove that we're not the true church of Jesus Christ. This is a conversation that's being had in much broader church culture very frequently now. And I've had a lot of conversations with, with many of you. And um, many of us, man, we have friends, we have family members. And, and some of us, I mean, if we're just being honest, maybe wrestling with this right now. And I praise God that you're here and that you have the faith to be here and, and know that this is a safe space for you to wrestle with these things. But, but some men are walking through you know, what's become known as deconstruction, deconversion. Many who grew up within the church, but for one reason or another, they, they walked away. And th- this has been a decades-long decline. It feels like it's, it's a bit of a, of a snowball that's turning into more of an avalanche with each passing generation. It just kind of seems to pick up steam a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more every 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, the church, unfortunately, we have this track record of, of blaming this over the last few decades on a lot of outside influences. And so we look back through the decades and we say, well, it's the, it's the sexual revolution. That's why. It's secular humanism. That, that's why. It's atheism. It's progressivism. It's just the culture. It's, it's all the distractions that exist in, in our world today. We tend to blame these outside influences. But if you listen to the stories of those who are walking away from the faith, and you, you really get down to, to the, the nitty-gritty of what's going on deep in their hearts, this is what you'll find very often to be true, and this is my hypothesis. For the vast majority, while some of those outside influences may have had a little bit of influence, the primary reason people deconstruct, deconvert, is because they spent time in the church And what was practiced was very different than what was preached. And we have to be able to look ourselves in in the mirror and acknowledge this reality. It's it's not so much the outside influences, although that, that may have had a compounding effect. The primary issue is that they heard one thing being preached and something very different being practiced. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, show of hands here this morning, how many of us were, were 90s church kids? You grew up in the church in the 90s, okay, awesome. So uh, DC Talk, Jesus Freak, that album is now over 25 years old. Do you feel old now that I've shared that with you? You remember, right, like you had it on your Walkman, your, like your cargo shorts with your, your portable CD player and your headphones. This is before AirPods, so you're you know, yanking out your cord all the time. And that was track four on, on this album, What If I Stumble? There's a muffled voice at the beginning uh, of that album. You might not have known. Uh, this was the voice of Brennan Manning, and he uttered these very, very, very famous words right before uh, that particular track. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. And that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Our doctrine has to produce devotion, or we don't have sound doctrine. We can call doctrine sound all we want. We can call our theology sound all we want. We can call our teaching sound all we want. If it is not producing sound living, if if orthodoxy is not producing orthopraxy, if what we're preaching is not leading to action, then we don't have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. James make this abundantly clear. Faith without works is dead. Just because we profess faith doesn't necessarily mean that we possess faith. You can grow up in the church, but, but far, far, far from Jesus Our doctrine has to produce devotion. And so I want to give us, as we close out together this morning, four challenges um, that really set out the trajectory for the rest of this series. But these are going to be our applications from verses 1 through 4 together this morning. Four challenges for us today. Uh, Some are personal and then some are for us really broadly um, as a church family. The first one is this. We can be confident that we are eternally secure in Christ. We can be confident that we are eternally secure in Christ. 
If you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you have repented of your life of sin and you have put your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you know, as we sang just a few moments ago, that Christ is your only hope in life and death, friend, silence the voice of the enemy, silence his lies, the Lord was never going to let you go. He is going to see you through in the end. You were not just predestined in eternity past, you were glorified in eternity past. Jesus promises, my sheep hear my voice. They will answer me. And of all the Father gives me, he says, I will not lose a single one. I'm not going to cast any out. Your salvation, it's not predicated on your ability to hold on to God. It's predicated on his ability to hold on to you. I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me. He's not going to let us go. If, if you haven't picked this up yet, I know most of these have gotten scooped up by now. We've got a free book uh, at the Next Steps table this morning called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you are a follower of Jesus and you struggle to believe God's relentless love for you, pick that up before you leave today. It's free. That's our gift to you. And root yourself in the confidence of a God who's never going to let you go. That's our first challenge. Second is this. We must faithfully and consistently practice in our culture what we preach in our doctrine. We have to practice what we preach. It's not enough to be sound in doctrine. Let, let, let's be honest. Like that first half of the message this morning, it's, it's kind of fun to do some theology, right? It's fun to nerd out a little bit and talk about the grand mysteries of God, but, but that should not leave us, cause us to leave here today in pride and arrogance of look how smart we are. This is not intended just for our information so we can sound uh, smart next to our, our unbelieving friend or whoever when we're meeting with them at a coffee shop. Like this is intended to meet, lead to transformation in our lives. If, if we can look and know that God in eternity past, man, he saw me at my worst he saw my sin, he saw my ugliness, he saw the worst of me from eternity past, saw no goodness in me and for no other reason except that he's good and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's kind. He saw me and said, that one belongs to me. Then surely we can look at even the worst of our enemies and show grace and peace and mercy to them. Our doctrine has to produce devotion. It's really sad to me, particularly in, in more reformed circles, a little bit more like our church, a lot of the, these beliefs and doctrinal convictions, man, it leads to pride and it leads to arrogance. We who believe these things should be the most humble Christians on the planet. Because we know that God chose us of no merit of our own, which means we can extend grace and mercy and love to other sinners. Third challenge is this. We can trust that the gospel, both preached and practiced, is sufficient to overcome sinful division. We can trust the sufficiency of the gospel to overcome sinful division. I spoke this a little bit earlier, but remember, uh, uh, Titus was a Gentile convert. Now, again, group participation here. What was the Apostle Paul's job before his life got wrecked by Jesus? What was he doing? He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And more specifically, he was kind of the face of those who were persecuting the Christians. He's the one that wanted to snuff this movement out from the beginning. But this is evidence of the power of the gospel is that the gospel had broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Jewish people used to refer to Gentiles as dogs. It was intended to be offensive and derogatory. That was the most unclean of animals. And here is Paul looking at Titus, and he's not calling him a dog. He's calling him a son. And this is the power of the gospel. You know, like many of you yesterday, our family just spent a lot of time in reflection and conversation over the events of September 11th. Man, who else is just blown away that it's been 20 years? I mean, it's just, I was a freshman in high school, and it, it's, it's weird. It feels like it was yesterday, but also feels like a few lifetimes ago. 
And, and the, man, out of all the tragedy and all the brokenness and, and the ugliness of, of those days, you know, the one thing that I remember the most is it's a period of my life where our nation was together. We almost forgot what that was like, right? We were together. And, and I, just, I just had this moment yesterday afternoon. My heart was really heavy, and I was, just, I was in my closet getting something, and I just kind of prayed to myself. I was like, Lord, is, is it going to take something like that to bring us together again? Is it going to take something like that to bring our country together again? But listen, as the church, we don't need to wait for tragedy to bring us together. We don't need to wait for persecution to bring us together. We already have what we need to bring us together, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is sufficient to overcome every cultural division, every racial division, every social division that exists in our world, and it's evidence through the relationship of Titus and Paul. Last challenge for us this morning. We're going to see this fleshed out particularly in chapter 2. We must foster an environment of intentional generational discipleship. Paul doesn't call Titus his true son in common political convictions. He calls him a true son in a common faith. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that united them together. And Paul, here he is, he's coming to the end of his life. He knows that his time is running a little bit short. It's probably a couple of years before he was finally martyred. And so you, you sense the earnestness. You sense the, the tone. You sense his urgency. You sense his sincerity. It's, it's all evident in the clarity to these two young men. Listen, don't miss these things. Don't miss this. It was a generational passing of the baton. Paul knew his time was running short, and he needed to strengthen these younger brothers in the faith so that they would be prepared to lead through what was yet to come. And so, you know, I want to give a couple of challenges to our, our whole congregation this morning. I think this is going to speak to everybody in this room. Um, you know, uh, typically, a church tends to be age-wise about 10 years on, on either side of its pastor. So again, uh, I'm, I'm just a few weeks shy of being 34, which means you look around, we've got a big demographic of those kind of mid-20s to mid-40s. And so I want to speak first to, to those of you who are maybe not in that demographic, who are our, our spiritual parents and grandparents in the room. Number one, I, I just want you to hear me say, I praise God that you're here. Praise God that you're here. We, we stepped out to plant this church. Uh, we were 28 at the time. And in my prayer to the Lord, I said, Lord, I, I do not want to pastor a bunch of people in their 20s. I said, I want to be a church that's full of spiritual mothers and grandmothers and spiritual fathers and grandfathers. I want to see every generation from, 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 from birth to, to, to post 100, whatever, whatever we've got. I want to see it all covered here because that is a reflection of the power of the gospel. It breaks down every barrier, even of age. And so I, I praise God and I rejoice that you're here. And I, I just want to give you a challenge this morning. I hope you find community here. I hope you find friendship here. I hope you are challenged and edified through the preaching of the word here. I hope that your faith is built up here. But would you please consider that the Lord has called you here for a higher purpose than what serves you. That he's called you here to this multi-generational church family in this time, in this place, to turn around and pass the, the baton. To make sure the baton of the gospel does not get dropped. To pour into us, to pour into others what the Lord for all of these decades has been pouring in to you. And that's my challenge for you. So if that's my challenge for our, our spiritual mothers and fathers and, grandmother, and grandfathers and fathers, if that's my challenge to them, my challenge is for those of us who are kind of under that mid-40s gap. If the challenge to them is to pass it on, the challenge for us is to pick it up. 
I just want to challenge all of us. Would we consider that, man, maybe the Lord is calling us to something higher than likes on Instagram and TikTok? He's calling us to greater purpose than ourselves. That he's calling us, man, teenagers, young men, young women, college-age students, young military, young families. He is calling us in this generation to pick up the baton, to make sure it doesn't get dropped. Now, I want to read this statistic for you. This comes from Duke University. This is hot off the press. National Congregation Study. In 1998, the median age for Protestant pastors, this was 23 years ago, was 49 years old. That was the median age. 23 years later, 2021, the median age for Protestant pastors is now 57 years old. There's one generation, it's time to pass it on, but right now there's not many people there to pick it up. And if you care, friends, about the faith of your children and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, We've got to take action. We have to take steps right now to ensure they are going to be faithful shepherds for the next generation. The Lord's calling some of us to pass it on. The Lord's calling some of us to to pick it up and to be people whose whose practice reflects our preaching, whose devotion reflects our doctrine, and to faithfully live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world around us today. So you just bow your heads with me this morning. We're preparing to come to the table today for communion as we do this, would we come in confession of sin? Man, I think so, especially this morning, let's be confessing those inconsistencies in our life where our practice doesn't reflect our preaching. Maybe you're just struggling to have confidence in God's love for you. And what you need to do today is go to a member of the prayer team and let them pray for you and encourage you to be strengthened in your faith, to have confidence that God is not gonna leave you or forsake you. So what do we need to lay before the Lord this morning in confession and repentance? What do we need to entrust to him? What do we need to believe him for? So Father, we we lay our sin before you this morning. We confess our sin. We repent of our sin. We ask that you give us confidence in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit. Fuel our devotion by our doctrine. Father, let us anchor our hearts and minds to truth that we could live faithfully in this world speak through us, move through us. Don't let us unsay by our culture what we say in our doctrine. Help us to show the same love and grace and peace that you've shown to us. We surrender all this to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen.